thanks for coming along tonight where Michael Gwenda makes a first appearance at the Sydney Institute but uh, I've known him for a long time and we're friends so I just want to introduce Michael talking on the topic tonight my life as an Australian Jew in 2023 uh, and he's just published my life as a Jew um, published by scribe which is just out and that's why he is here now I'll introduce Michael very briefly um, he's one of Australia's best-known journalists and authors in a career spanning four decades, he was a political reporter, a foreign correspondent uh, based in London and in Washington, a columnist, a feature writer, and a senior editor of Time magazine. And he was editor and editor-in-chief in chief of The Age in Melbourne from 1997 to 2004 and many other things. But tonight he's here with his, on the occasion of the publication of his book, talking about my life as an Australian Jew in 2023. Michael, you're very welcome. Well, thank you for that very kind invitation, Jared. Um, I haven't, I come here as a left-wing Jew. Um, I have to say that uh, because my book is really about the story of a Jew who grew up in, in a left-wing home, in a non-Zionist home, um, and the journey that I've taken from that to where I am now, um, which is not where I was 60 years ago or more. So Anne and Jared, thank you for having me tonight and thank you all for coming. And I hope that at the end of my talk, you will all have really tough and difficult questions for me that I will endeavor to answer, but will probably fail to do so adequately. Now, in a sense, my life as a Jew in 2023, as opposed to my life as a Jew in 2022, when I was writing and editing my book, started when the year was almost over. On October the 7th, 2023. In the late afternoon here in Melbourne and Sydney, and early in the morning in Israel. I am a secular Jew, though in recent times, for reasons I explore in my book, I feel an increasing connection to Judaism. I have even attended synagogue this year and last year after a 50-year absence, absence. But I do not observe Shabbos, Shabbos is the Yiddish term for the Sabbath, except that we light candles on Friday night and recite the Shabbos prayers. And my, my grandson recites them in Yiddish because he goes to a Yiddish school in Melbourne. We drink a few glasses of wine and a shot or two of whiskey and eat the challah that my son has baked, the best challah that I have ever tasted. So unlike many Jews in Australia and Israelis who on Shabbos do not read or listen to any news, do not go on the internet or, or check social media, in fact they switch off their, their phones, late in the afternoon on October the 7th I received news alerts, which I do from various media organisations 
papers that I follow in America and in Israel and in Britain. I'm an old journalist after all. And a barrage, what I heard was that a barrage of rockets had been fired from Gaza into Israel and the residents of the small communities and kibbutzes in the south, not far from Gaza, had hurried into their safe rooms. And then the news quickened. The alerts came faster. There were reports that the Gaza security fence had been breached. The military posts had been attacked. Hamas fighters, it turned out that there were thousands of them, had streamed through the breaches of the fence. They had virtually, um, they had virtually destroyed all the military outposts, most of which were staffed by young women, um, some of whom I, they took as, um, as hostages, the rest they, they killed. Uh, the people in the villages were locked in their safe rooms because of the rocket fire and the Hamas killers were setting fire to their homes to smoke out the residents. And the most horrible thing was the IDF was nowhere to be seen. And I can remember at the time I thought, could this be true? Could it really be true that the thousands of people who lived in these communities and kibbutzes, and I had visited some of them, I had friends that lived in a, a particular kibbutz but weren't there at the time of these attacks. And it included Bedouin communities and scores of Thai workers um, who worked on, were on work permits and worked on the collective farms that the kibbutzes ran. And all of them were there alone, locked in these rooms. They were defenceless. They could hear the attackers. And you could read this. I mean, the news reports were coming in. Um, I don't, I'm not even sure where they were coming from, but you could, in real time, read about sketches of what was actually happening. And then came the most horrifying news. Young people at a rave party for peace in the desert. A thousand or more of them. It turns out in the end that 360 of them were killed, not 250 as was first reported, uh, were attacked by Hamas killers who flew in on motorised hang gliders and came into the desert in trucks and bulldozers. They had shot and stabbed and burned to death hundreds of revellers for peace, revellers for peace, mostly young people in their late teens and early 20s. The killers had also used hand grenades to blow up groups of young people. I didn't know that at the time, but this, this came out later. Later we learned that young women had been raped before they were killed, and some had been raped before they were taken hostage. And there were actually pictures later, you could see photos of young women who, um, who were being put on motorcycles and in other vehicles. Uh, one in particular, I remember, was wearing trousers and she had blood on, on the back of her trousers. So scores of ravers for peace were taken as hostages and then came the news that hundreds of hostages had been taken, hundreds, men, women, children, babies, taken into Gaza by the killers. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because I remember the first call I made to my family in Israel. They are, most of them, Israeli-born. They are the children and grandchildren of my mother's brother and sister 
sisters who went to Israel from the DP camp in Austria, where I was born, and where my family, my side of the family, were also there in the DP camp. <clears throat> my family received visas for Australia because my father had cousins in Australia to sponsor us. Often over a long period of time, I thank God, even though I was an atheist, um, that my father had cousins here who could bring us to this wonderful country. My mother's family could not get visas for anywhere. And so they went to Israel just months, literally months, before the state was born. And some of them, Holocaust survivors, actually fought in the 1948 War of Independence. So that night, we shared information that first night of the attacks all through the night. I was up the whole night talking to them. And ever since that first call, we have been in touch with my family every night with calls and messages and photographs exchanged between us. I'll tell you all this because this nightly contact with my family in Israel is just one of the many ways my life as a Jew in 2023 changed on October 7. Before that, we were in contact, but just every now and then, and we saw each other. We saw them when my wife and I went to visit Israel, and uh, my, my son went quite often to Israel to play music, uh, and he would see them as well. But there was nothing like the intensity of our relationship post-October 7. As every terrible detail emerged in that first week after October 7 of what the Hamas murderers had done, I often felt like I was living in Australia during the day and in Israel at night. I was living two realities. This is the Jew I had become in, on October 7th, 2023. I'm sorry about this. I was not alone in this. There, were fewer than, there are fewer than 100,000 Jews in Australia, according to the last census, though there may be several thousand more because some Jews, secular Jews in particular, answered the religion question on the census form with the word none so they wouldn't have been counted. Whatever the actual number, it is a small community, less than a sixth of the size of Australia's Muslim community. But it is a unique community, a unique diaspora community. From around 1947 to 1940, 1952, Australia took in more Holocaust survivors as a proportion of the population than any other country bar Israel, includes the United States, includes Canada. The children of these survivors and their grandchildren and even their great-grandchildren form more than half of the community, certainly in Victoria that's true. I think it's true to a certain extent in New South Wales as well because New South Wales took in a large number of Hungarian refugees who, who, were, who had lived through the Holocaust. The survivors were a remarkable lot of Jews. They rebuilt their lives in Australia. They built successful businesses. They built law firms. They joined 
in large numbers. The major political parties, they set up Jewish cultural and religious institutions. They built a Jewish school network, a Jewish schools network, really, which is unmatched anywhere else in the world. Half of Australians' Jewish kids go to a Jewish day school. It's a remarkable figure. And they were, from the start, overwhelmingly fervent Zionists who believed that without the miraculous birth of Israel so soon after the darkest chapter of Jewish history through which they had lived, there would have been no future for them or for the Jewish people. Their children and even their grandchildren in survey after survey have described themselves as Zionists. Indeed, in the most recent surveys, close to 80% of Australian Jews described themselves as committed Zionists. Australian Jews, according to these surveys, have visited Israel in greater numbers proportionally than the Jews of the United States. And they feel a connection to the country that only going there, being there, can establish. And many, like me, have family in Israel, most likely family unlike me, who have made Aliyah, gone to, set, gone to settle in Israel. There are many thousands of Australians who are dual Australian and Israeli citizens, some of whom are now serving, they were reservists serving in the IDF. Now, why am I telling you all this? I am telling you this because without understanding it, you cannot really understand how it was that what happened on October 7th was so devastating, so frightening for Australian Jews in particular. For them, there were echoes of a darker time, the darker time that their grandparents lived through. In my case, for people my age, their parents had lived through. Okay, so let me go back to the Jew I was before October 2023. I think it's fair to say that Israel was not a miracle for that part of the Jewish community in Australia, that very small part of the Jewish community in which I grew up. I describe my Jewish upbringing in my book, which I hope you'll all read, of course. Suffice it to say that from a very early age, I was a member of this organisation, children's organisation, called SCIF, which was the children's organisation of the Bund. I don't know how many of you know about the Bund, but the Bund was a major political party in Eastern Europe before the Second World War. It was internationalist in outlook, militantly secular, and anti-Zionist before the establishment of the State of Israel. It dropped its anti-Zionism after Israel was established. There was no point in being an anti-Zionist. But it believed in Jewish peoplehood and it was committed to Yiddish and Yiddish culture, the culture of secular East European Jews of which there were three million or more and my family were part of that culture. Before the Second World War, the Bund in Eastern Europe, in Poland and Lithuania in particular, had tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of members. In Poland, it was amongst the biggest Jewish political parties, bigger than most of the Zionist parties. It was a democratic socialist party, 
and of course by then it had been suppressed in Russia. After the revolution, democratic socialists were considered bourgeois traitors. And its leaders were subsequently, subsequently either executed by Stalin or sent to the Gulag for the rest of their lives. Its credo was that Jews were a people of the world and that the unique strength of Jewish peoplehood lay in the ability of Jews to build strong Jewish communities wherever Jews lived. At the same time, it, would, it was to be and it was part of a larger human story the inevitable triumph of the international brotherhood of man through socialism. It was literally fatal. This credo proved to be fatally flawed. It was literally fatal for most of the members of the Bund. The Nazis and their helpers murdered most of them in the extermination camps they had set up in Poland. A small remnant of the Bund, perhaps a couple of hundred Bundists, who still believed, hard to believe, isn't it? Still believed, managed to survive the Holocaust and ended up as refugees in Australia. There were never more than a few hundred of them and perhaps a couple of hundred SCIF members like me but they were very influential, especially in the Labor Party. They built Jewish communal cultural centers, these few hundred refugees, mostly Holocaust survivors. And they built a primary school where Yiddish was taught, the only Yiddish day school in the world. My children and my grandchildren go to Sholem Aleichem College, which is that secular Yiddish day school in Melbourne. My education, my general education and my Jewish education was in Skiff, where I first declared myself a socialist when I was eight years old. I was not a Zionist. This was when being a Zionist meant believing that the only future for the Jewish people was in Israel. Of course, the meaning of being a Zionist has changed completely and it's changed by the enemies of Zionists. To be a Zionist nowadays for many Jewish people as well is to support the existence of the State of Israel. But that was never what Zionism was. Zionism was an answer to Jewish helplessness. The only way Jews were going to survive is by going and living in a state of their own. Now my book describes my long journey away from Skiff and the Bund, if not from social democracy. For I was and still consider myself to be a social democrat, a person of the left. But my book is also about how, increasingly, I came to feel that a growing part of the left, including former comrades of mine from Skiff, people I grew up with and who were my friends, had come to believe that the only good Jew, the only Jew who can really be a Jew of the left, was a Jew who repudiated Zionism. The only good Jew was a Jew who called out Zionism as evil and racist and considered Israel the poison, the poison fruit of this evil, racist, colonialist ideology. Jews like me were bad Jews, 
bad leftists because we refused to repudiate the connection we felt with Israel. Now, my book was published two days before October the 7th. And we had a launch in Melbourne where hundreds of people came. And it was a kind of celebration. And my book is full of, if you read it now, it's full of forebodings about what the left would be like if something happened between Israel and Hamas or Israel with the Palestinians. What would happen on the left? So in a way, my, my book, I think, I'm not going to be modest, is prophetic. You can read it and you'll see that I was prophesizing what actually happened in the end. It predicted the way much of the left, including Jewish lefters, would respond to any flare-up of hostilities between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, for instance. Of course, I could not predict the events of October 7, nor did I predict the explosion of anti-Semitism across the world, the virulence of it, the widespread hostility to Jews that has followed those terrible events of October 7. In 2022, when I wrote my book, I had already concluded that some of my Jewish friendships, some childhood friendships, and one friendship that I write about in my book, in particular with the publisher Louise Adler, were over. They were friendships that couldn't be sustained. These friendships were unsustainable because our sense of ourselves as Jews was in conflict. This conflict was, was at the core of the sort of left-wing Jews we were. I supported Israel's right to exist. And more than that, by then I had grown to love the country. And I believed it had become essential to Jewish survival. They did not. In many ways, they had come to despise Israel. The Jew I am, less than two months after October 7, is anxious about the future, concerned that my children and grandchildren may be subjected to significant anti-Semitism and a widespread hostility to Jews that might subside once the war in Gaza ends though I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. I fear they will live their lives in Australia, in this, in Jewish, in Yiddish terms, this golden Medina, which is this golden land for Jews, as we Jews have long regarded it, with anti-Semitism and with a sort of endemic hostility to Jews that was wholly absent when I was growing up. I fear that it is increasingly possible that significant sections of the Labor Party will go the way of the Greens. Certainly the second largest left-wing party in Australia with significant parliamentary representation both federally, state level and even at local council level. And that, and that these sections of the Labor Party will buy the despicable anti-colonialist ideology of the anti-Zionist left 
which the Greens have adopted, and the shallow and unhinged ideology of the social justice warriors and race essentialists who blame the victims for what happened to them on October 7th for what was done to them. Now look what happened in the days after the Saturday, October 7th. I've got to repeat this, some of you probably know it, but it's important to emphasise this. And the kidnapping of hundreds of hostages on that date. There was now infamous rally, Jared has written about it, outside the Sydney Opera House, where hundreds of demonstrators danced, chanted, death to the Jews, and that wonderful slogan, gas the Jews. And from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. A day later, there was a pro-Palestinian rally of thousands of people in Melbourne, where the protesters didn't chant death to the Jews, not as far as I know anyway, but there were, there were chants of from the river to the sea, and with those chants, and free Palestine, with those chants, there were people everywhere who held up placards comparing Israel to Nazi Germany. One of the things that struck me about the Melbourne rally, and I speak now because of the sort of Jew I grew up to be when I was a child, one of the things that I found confounding, inexplicable, but really in the end contemptible, and I'm going to name her, was that Geordie Silverstein, a Jew, a Jewish academic who was a scholar of Jewish cultural history at Melbourne University, was one of the speakers at that rally. She spoke and chanted and stood there in front of placards. I, I talk about her in my book too. Calling for an end to Israel. This two days after the massacre of many hundreds of Jews in the biggest slaughter of Jews since 1945. At subsequent rallies, several young Jews they mostly identified, this is important, they mostly identified as non-binary, who had attended Jewish schools, made speeches wearing Palestinian scarves, and cheered on, and they were cheered on by people holding signs, calling for the elimination of Israel, and they led chants from the river to the sea interspersed with leading chants of shame. The Israeli action in Gaza had hardly begun. Nothing had happened. It was two days, three days after that terrible slaughter. Now, I make the point they, that they were gender non-binary. I'm not even sure what gender non-binary means. Uh, but they were theys. And I suspect that I'm probably right that they were graduates in gender studies and in anti-colonialism studies at one of the universities, Mel Pickwick, Melbourne, pick which you have one you like, Melbourne University, Monash University, more likely Melbourne. Now, even before the Israeli campaign against Hamas had began, indeed almost instantly, what had happened on October 7th was woefully forgotten by people who call themselves pro-Palestinian but are actually supporters of Hamas. It was forgotten too, more or less, by people who went on marches days after it had happened, in their thousands, calling for peace 
before the bodies of the murdered had even been recovered. It was forgotten by the media, of which I was part, which in the main, it seems, can't remember what happened an hour ago and less than, little less than two days ago. The victims were vanished, the hostages were vanished, so much so that now there is a growing movement of people, some apparently formerly sane people, who believe October 7 didn't happen. And if it didn't happen, the Israeli, the IDF did the killing. The IDF did the killing. There's a report today on, on some of those social media outlets that it was the, the young people killed at the rave were killed by Israeli helicopter attack gunships. Now, within days of October 7, there were petitions circulating, even before the start of the Israeli bombing campaign about Israel's genocidal war against Gaza, a genocidal war conducted by an Ill illegitimate state for no reason other than its colonialist and racist nature against innocent and defenceless Palestinians who had suffered 75 years of brutal occupation. Now, I don't, I don't want to suggest in any way that what is happening in Gaza to the people of Gaza is not appalling and horrifying. I'm not suggesting that. I do not want people like me to harden our hearts against what you can see happening in Gaza. But hundreds, perhaps thousands of writers and academics signed these letters and petitions. Seeing a journalist sign these letters and petitions. One petition was signed by hundreds of members of the journalist union. One was organised by the cultural magazine Overland, which called for an investigation into what actually happened on October 7. The magazine's patron, Barry Jones, labelled this petition appalling, but hundreds of writers signed it. Most of these petitions did not mention the Hamas terrorist slaughter. When they did, like Overland, they both questioned what happened or justified it, did both, on the basis that in the anti-colonial struggle, the Hamas action was an act of resistance. Anti-Semitism anti is on the rise, in part, of course, I believe, because of these rallies and petitions, in part, too, because of this ignoring and willful forgetting of what happened on October 7, and in part, it's sad to say, because history tells us it is always there, anti-Semitism, lurking beneath the surface, and that when the time is right, so to speak, it emerges with an unexpected fury and intensity. Now, in my view, in the media, only the Australian has called out the rise of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic attacks on Jews in a clear and unqualified way, without, as a matter of balance, referring to the rise of Islamophobia. Let me state this bluntly. There is no equivalence in the figures between the rise of anti-Semitism in Australia and internationally 
and whatever the increase may be of Islamophobia, however that term is defined and it's so vague that it's impossible to know what people mean when they use it. Why was this? Why was this? Why was there this need for equivalence in the media? You, I mean, you can't read the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age or listen to the ABC talk about anti-Semitism without the right of there's also Islamophobia, folks. Don't forget that. Equal. Both equally threatened. In fact, what that does is it diminishes the reality of anti-Semitism. It's like it's happening to everybody. Well, why was this? In part, this was because many of their journalists, I believe this from experience, had imbibed the structural raci racism and anti-colonial ideology which po posits that Jews are white and therefore cannot be the victims of racism. What this means is that many on the left, for many on the left, including many journalists, Find it, they find it very hard to accept that anti-Semitism exists at all. Jews are white. They are white and have white privilege, which explains why they are successful. Not that they've worked hard, not that they've, but they're successful because they were the beneficiaries of white privilege, and so they are in a sense, quintessential white racists. And of course they support a racist ideology and a racist state, which is also a state suffused with white privilege. Among Jews there was fear, there is fear and anger, and above all, a sense of being abandoned, a sense of powerlessness. Now I'm not saying that's true. But a lot of Jews felt it, I felt it. And I felt it particularly, Jews like me felt it particularly, because we felt abandoned by people who were our former colleagues. Officials of the major Jewish organisations mounted campaigns to counter the rising hostility to Jews, but I fear that their voices in much of the media were not given an airing. This was because many journalists had come to see themselves as activists, warriors for the Palestinian cause. And they had publicly declared that they were going to give preference to Palestinian voices and not those old tired voices of the Zionists and the Jews who were putting the case for Israel. Now what I found confounding about all this, the journalists signing petitions, uh, uh, declaring that they could be activists, was that there was no pushback from the media companies to this notion, a new notion, of what journalists are and what journalists should do. As far as I know, none of these journalists were told that the sort of journalism they wanted to do was not acceptable in the media companies they worked for. Increasingly, what I thought it meant to be a journalist, what I had grown up to think it meant to be a journalist, what I had promoted when I was editor of The Age, and we had a code of conduct that was drawn up 
uh, with the journalists about the ethics of being a journalist. And what it meant was a commitment to fairness, to factual accuracy, to never being agenda-driven, to be as objective as you could be, as open-minded as you could be, is considered nowadays by many journalists to be a quaint definition of the profession from a distant past. I am and remain a Jew of the left, a social democrat. But what has happened in the past few weeks has made it clear that the anti-Zionist left in the main is not just hostile to Jews, which I, which I had long considered to be the case, and I write about it in my book, but is infected with a disease of anti-Semitism. I think some journalists are infected with a disease of anti-Semitism. Now, I do need to say that, of course, there is anti-Semitism, old-fashioned anti-Semitism of the extreme right. Uh, and that is repulsive, uh, and we would all agree on that. And even there is some instances where Jews have been threatened by neo-Nazis. That is true. But it is the anti-Semitism of the left, the left of which I have long been a part, the anti-Zionist left, which I wasn't part of, uh, the anti-Israel left, which is anti-Semitic, that is on the rise and that is increasingly making Jews feel unsafe and isolated and that is threatening them with violence. I mean, th th they, in a sense, they are, they, they, they control the media. They don't control it, but their journalists set the tone of the way the media covers these issues. And for me, perhaps the greatest disappointment has not been those Jews on the left, some of whom were my former friends, who joined the pro-Palestinian protests and even spoke at them or who signed those letters and petition calling for Israel's demise. I expected it from them and they had long ago ceased to be my friends. No, my greatest disappointment was with leftist Jews like me who had a public profile and who had no doubt felt horrified and full of pain at what had happened on October 7, but could not bring themselves to say so. They were silent. They could not bring themselves to declare that they were in mourning. These are Jews with a public profile. Some of them run major Jewish faculties at universities. They were either silent or spoke in the language of obfuscation. One of them described October 7, for instance, as an escalation of violence. <laughs> they were silent in my view because they feared being expelled from the brotherhood and sisterhood of the left. In 2021, I published a book called The Power Broker, An Australian Jewish Life. It was a biography of the Jewish Zionist leader, Mark Liebler. And in a sense, it was the story of a small but successful and even powerful Jewish community which could produce a leader like Liebler. He was a leading lawyer, business advisor, who over the years has had the ear of every Australian Prime Minister since Malcolm Fraser. Back then, when I was writing that book, I did think the Jews were a wonderful success story in Australia in this golden land. 
and powerful way beyond the size of the community. Powerful not for nefarious reasons, not that they had a secret agenda to control the world, but because of its success, because the community was successful, because of the outstanding business people and outstanding lawyers and judges and medical researchers and edu educators, outstanding Australians that this community had produced. But I've got to say, right now, that feels like bulldust. Jews are not powerful. They are a small community which makes them politically marginal at best. They are, there are more than six times the number of Muslims in Australia, Muslim Australians, probably more. Jews are not powerful politically, especially in the Labor Party. They're not powerful in our, many of our institutions, in our universities, and they are not powerful in the media. Now, it may be that this is overly pessimistic and dark, and that in the main, this is the response from a left-wing Jew who feels cast out of his political home. A Jew increasingly disillusioned with the Labor Party, whose leaders in the main can't call out anti-Semitism without equally calling out Islamophobia, when in, rel in reality they all know there is no equivalence between the two, not even close. This is the first time I have spoken at the Sydney Institute. I appreciated the invitation and the chance, yes, to promote my book a little bit. Here, there will be people, there are people, who understand what I am saying and who understand why Australian Jews feel isolated and threatened. I am an Australian Jew in November 2023. I am a lifelong social democrat. I edited a left liberal newspaper for seven years. But let me tell you this. Every morning, I read The Australian, and nowadays, I thank goodness for it. I even quite regularly thank goodness for Jared Henderson. <laughs> and I have told him so. So thank you, Jared and Anne, for having me. Let me tell you, there are places that would not have me, that have refused to have me, because they are too scared to host a writer who has written a book about being a Jew. And thank you all for coming to hear me speak. And if you so desire, perhaps buy a copy of my book. Thank you. So many thanks to Michael for a terrific speech. We're coming to questions and discussion. Um, we've got copies of My Life as a Jew uh, outside, which we're selling. Michael will sign, um, so Michael will sign them. And so we come to questions and discussion. Um, we don't have a lot of time, so everyone's pretty brief, like like this. We had Michael, former Justice Michael Kirby, here on the night of the night of the 9th of October, the Monday night. And around when it got to seven o'clock, when it finished, there was a, a cameraman down the back said, "There's a demonstration down the street," 
and it was this demonstration that went from the town hall down to Opera House. Now what I noticed, and I mentioned this in my column on Saturday, between Bent Street and Bridge Street, at the end of the march, because we saw the end of it, that whole block was full of police cars, including the riot squad, and they were behind the demonstration, sort of guiding it. Now this is not the problem of the New South Wales Premier's being very good, Christopher Minns, but somewhere along the line, the police authorities didn't do anything. You've had similar examples in Melbourne. Is this a, a lack of um, commitment by society to defend minorities, or is it an accident, or what happened there? Well, I think the I think the police feel like they they have an impossible task. Um, we have a commitment to free speech. They accept that that commitment exists. Are they to draw the line uh, in terms of what can be said in a demonstration and what can't? They feel like they feel like they can't do that. Uh, I've I've spoken to police in in Melbourne. Um, there are police who are incredibly involved in protecting the Jewish community. Um, they have been for years. Uh, there's a, a, a little unit that, that oversees this. And they say the police who go to attend demonstration are not properly, properly instructed in terms of what to look out for, what they can do, what they can't do. So they're sort of lost. I think it's a political failure, actually. There is a police minister in New South Wales, there's a police minister in, um, in, uh, in Victoria that can deal with this, can instruct the police. What are the political implications of what's going on? What should you look for? What's acceptable? What isn't acceptable? It's not done. I mean, I think of the main politicians on this are cowards. It seemed to have escaped everyone, but the 7th of October was the anniversary of birth of one of the biggest scumbags ever born in our history, namely former chicken farmer, come Reichsfuhrer SS Heinrich Himmler. I don't know whether Hamas used that as their uh, uh, help or assistance, whatever, and that, but it's pretty misjudged. What I'd like to know, where is the alleged Human Rights Commission looking after people like Jews rather than picking on people like Bill Leake? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I, I, I don't think, um, I think that, I think that the human, I think the Human Rights Commission has been captured. I mean, it is, it is ideologically committed to um, a kind of woke agenda, really. Um, it has, uh, it has, for instance, it has refused to allow, this is not exactly on topic, but it's part of the same thing, it has refused to allow a group of lesbians who wanted to have a meeting where only women born lesbian could attend. They weren't allowed to have that meeting. The human rights, the, the, the trans lesbians, whatever they, went to the Human Rights Commission and the Human Rights Commission ruled that that was that was against the statute that, but no one has, none, none of the commissioners have said, we should have a look at, is it okay to chant, gas the Jews? Is it okay to, to, to even is it okay to chant from the river to the sea? 
What do they mean when they chant it? Isn't it reasonable to look at what that, but nothing has been done about that. Uh, what does your ex exposition of journalists explicitly abandoning ballots and claiming activist status tell us about the state of journalism generally in Australia today? Well, I think I think uh, I think, um, I think it's an international. Well, it's a, it's a trend in the whole English-speaking world. It's not just in Australia. It's true in America. It's true in England, um, in Britain. Um, and I think what is happening is that young journalists in particular, but there are older ones that lead them, now demand things from media companies that the media companies find it very hard to push back on. They're frightened. A good sign, a good sign, and I think it's one and it may be more. Last week the New York Times um, said to two young journalists who had signed petitions that you're acting against our code of conduct, you either stop signing petitions or you, you leave, and they left. It was a big deal that the New York Times did that. It was news. And, and look, they were, they were African-American journalists, so it made it even more difficult for them to do this. But it was done, and what and and that will have an impact on other liberal media. I don't know how much of an impact, but what I what and I and I what I hope happens in Australia is that the media companies that must know they can't let journalism deteriorate into a, a form of activism because all the privileges that journalists have that 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 governments don't particularly like they will all disappear if they end up being just another form of activists. Thank you. Um, I'd like to just sort of move on to the question of the ABC and the obfuscatory commentary by the managing director and, you know, his inability to understand the issues that exist there. You know, one would have thought given that they're supposed to be running a reasonably major um, press-type organisation, he should understand the meaning of journalism. Well, I mean, they, they have a strange... Uh, of course, the ABC has a bit of a strange actor. He's, he's, uh, he's not just the managing director. He's meant to be the editor-in-chief as well, but he, he's not a journalist. Um, and... Um, and the journalists wouldn't listen to him anyway. Um, what I found most disturbing about the ABC, uh, and there's many things, and I don't want to I don't want to criticise individual journalists, but what I found most disturbing was that meeting of the 200 journalists um, in Sydney who demanded that the ABC change the language they use to describe what was happening in Gaza. So. You had to describe it as a genocide. Uh, you had to use the term anti-colonial. You had to use the term ethnic cleansing. And why is that? Because the Human Rights Human Rights Watch had used those terms. And of course, Human Rights Watch is the arbiter of what's acceptable and what isn't. Now, what amazed me was that the major 
the major editorial executives went to that meeting and said, we hear you and we'll have another look at our guidelines. Now it is true that three days, two days ago, the managing director did come out and say, we're not gonna use the term genocide, we're not gonna use the term ethnic cleansing, we're not gonna use, but why did it take three days? Why couldn't those journalists be told, go and do your work, go and do your job, report you know that's what you're paid to do and what what's more go and look at the ABC go and look at what you're meant to be doing what the taxpayers are paying you to do why couldn't they say that it's a simple thing to say uh, hi Michael um, I'm just going to go off this a bit and back to Israel um, interestingly the times of Israel has just broken all kinds of records for new subscriptions in the last few weeks. I'm one of them. I've taken it out and Haaretz. But um, reading about Israeli politics and looking at what happened on the 7th of October when the IDF was caught unawares, there's been a huge upheaval of protests and demonstrations about the issue of the High Court over there and they, some people say they had their minds distracted. But the ultra-Orthodox are not... Um, forced or re required to do their national service. And this is a special whatever law. But do you think after this that might change? And do you think that the politics of Israel might shift a bit? Well, I, I think on the ultra-Orthodox, there wasn't a law that allowed them to be exempt from military service there's a law now this government passed a law because they're, they're such an important that that torah study can be considered a form of national service i mean it's really a nonsense but there are some reports that increasing of uh, orthodox ultra orthodox young people young men in particular are volunteering for the army want to serve um, so that has changed. Can I just say on the future, I'm an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. There's no point in being, everyone can be a pessimist. I think politics will be fundamentally changed in Israel by this. I think this generation of politicians is finished. I don't mean just Netanyahu. I mean the leaders of all the political parties, their time is over. It'll, it might take a year or two, but their time is over. And amongst Israelis, there will be, there has to be, I hear it from my family, that you cannot go on with the old status quo where you thought you could just, basically, Israelis were living a life for the last 10, 15 years where they didn't think they had to think about the Palestinians. If you went to Israel and you spoke to Israelis, they never thought about them. They never saw them. They never went there. Uh, it was as if they didn't exist. Well, that's impossible now. That 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 won't be possible once this is over. Sorry if you can indulge me. I won't be that brief. Um, as a father, all right. As a father of a soldier in the IDF, I just wanted to uh, bring you back to the ABC and what's happening this weekend or later this week is a uh, demonstration by children or school children for Palestine, and you read today's Australian, no doubt, and you read the diary by Jenna Clark. 
she referred to the ABC show called Behind the News, which is targeted towards children. And I'll just read you one thing out of it and I'd like you to comment about the ABC. Another complaint was from a father of a nine-year-old public school girl in Sydney who said she was confronted after Behind the News was shown in class recently. Her boy came up to me. I didn't know who he was. He asked, are you for Israel or for the other place? I didn't quite get it. I told him Israel and he said to me, I hope you die. Yeah. Now, okay. okay, that's the point. The ABC is not the... Well, well uh, just on, on, uh, on that in particular, I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that that little boy and little girl, or whatever it was, exchange came as a result of that program. I mean, you've got to, you've got to. You, I don't know what it's like in Sydney, but there are whole suburbs in Melbourne where these school children are going to are going to march on Thursday, uh, where they have Muslim majority school populations. Who knows what they're? I don't know what they're taught at home, um, and I don't know where they would have got that sort of thing. I'll say two things about that. If I was running that program for young children, I wouldn't deal with this issue. I don't think it's impossible to deal with this in any way that makes sense for children, in any way. One of the concerns that I have is that a large portion of the footage and the commentary coming out of Gaza is supplied by Al Jazeera, as you know, which is a mouthpiece of the Qatari government. Little of it is questioned. When I asked a, the head of news from both the SBS, why do you keep using it, and the ABC, they said because it's cheap. What can be done to try and get some more balance when that is the core information and pictures coming out of Gaza? Well, I've got a very simple answer to your question. Um, it doesn't just come out of Al Jazeera, it comes out of so-called journalists, um, uh, Gazan journalists based in Gaza. Um, and the fact is, what, what, uh, what, what any decent correspondent operating out of Jerusalem has to say time and time again is that there is no equivalence in terms of the validity of reporting that we get out of Israel, that I am, I'm there doing it out of Israel, as well as hundreds of other journalists, uh, and what we get from Gaza, which we, which we can't confirm, uh, which we don't know where it's coming from, which we can't put in any context. So when we report any of that, we have to say we don't know whether that's true. Here's what we do know is true, whatever it is that they know to be true. That's the job of journalists. Journalists can't do what I believe is a fundamental thing. Here is what I know and here is what I don't know. I want to tell you what I do know and here's why I know it and I want to tell you what I don't know and here's what I, I, I don't know. And it's never said about Gaza. I mean, the fact is the New York Times and others keep talking about that they've got independent journalists in, in Gaza. They haven't got independent journalists. Show me one journalist in Gaza who has been able to ask Hamas, do you have, do you have, do you have military in hospitals? 
why, where do you fire your rockets from? Why do you do that? No one's ever asked them, no journalists. These are the most fundamental questions that if you really had journalists operating in Gaza, that's what they'd ask. It never asked. They never ask any questions. They're not allowed to. I've got one question here, but it's not. It's from Bendigo, actually, on on the Zoom, Good and we've got to be we've got to be very quick on this. Our Victorian um, member who wants to know what chances of a decent review in the age of your book. Well, well, um, well, no chance. <laughs> no chance. I mean, the book was reviewed uh, on in the conversation um, by. I wrote in my book that the only people who get to write reviews of books uh, about Jewish issues are secular left-wing Jews who are good Jews. So the conversation gave my book to Dennis Altman, who is a secular left-wing Jew, who said as much. He said, Michael Gawenda's right. The book was given to me. And of course, how was Dennis going to deal with the central thing about my book, which is about how I have become not one of the Jews like him? Well done. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm ple pleased to say that you, your earlier book got a great review on the Sydney Institute Review on, online. That your was. book, yeah, that was good. Uh, but not, 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 I think, in The Guardian. And, yeah, there no. you go. Look, um, it was a great night tonight. We're right on time. We've gone a little bit over. Copies of, of Michael's terrific book here. And well done tonight for your courage and for your th for directness. Well done. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.